I'm San Francisco Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and you're listening to Fifth in Mission. I'm talking today with Dr. Mark Shapiro, a hospitalist at Santa Rosa Memorial Hospital who's here to clarify why the Bay Area is being instructed to continue sheltering in place, even though its COVID-19 deaths and hospitalizations remain low. He's also discussing his frustration over the lack of guidance and clarity from the White House, leaving states and counties operating largely on their own. Dr. Mark Shapiro, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, you are a really straight shooter. I've been following you on Twitter for quite a while and would love for you to just clarify for listeners some of the confusion I think people have in the Bay Area. You know, our numbers with COVID-19 are really good compared to the rest of the state and the rest of the country. Um, We flattened the curve, but um, we're still being told to stay inside longer than a lot of other places. Um, Kind of some confusing messages about um, it's fine to go outside, don't go outside, support your local businesses don't go into businesses. (laughs) So um, I was just wondering if you can kind of give it to us straight about the current state of affairs in the Bay Area and when it will be safe to kind of reopen up more. That's a great question. I appreciate you framing it in that way because I think it really gets to the core of what the issue is and where we are. I agree with you. The Bay Area, the North Bay have done about as good a job as anywhere in the country at flattening the curve. And the data really speaks to that. I think at the same time, it's important to acknowledge that people are going to start to chafe when they hear that over and over. We've done what you've asked us to do. The numbers look really good in our region. Why are we not able to start getting back to normal life? And that's totally understandable. I think at the same time, there's an important friction to acknowledge, and that is what is actually happening with the COVID-19 pathogen. To the best of our knowledge, we, we, we know that it is not gone. We know that it is still there. The, the bug is still lurking. It's still virulent. It's still causing harm all across the country. We know the numbers around the country are rising. So we have to look outside of our kind of Bay Area bubble and, and see that for what it is. Mm-hmm. As we start to acknowledge that we want to move out and people start to get frustrated, it's important to see why that frustration comes from. And I think that this is the thing that, for me at least, is a point of friction and frustration. And it's okay for me to acknowledge that too. When we're told to shelter in place and we're told to do social distancing and close our businesses and do all that work, you're kind of entering into a contract. When the government's telling us to do that, there's 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 an agreement that, look, we're going to do this, but you've got to support us while we're doing it. And you've got to give us the right tools to get out of this safely. Getting out of a shelter in place or order safely the, the right way to do that is to be able to test people at scale. Not being able to do that right now, having not gotten those processes in place over the last six weeks with all of that goodwill that we've had, that's frustrating. Right. <laughs> that, that's frustrating. We need, we need to be in a much different place around testing because when you can test somebody and they're negative, that's different than saying, we don't think you have it, right? There's a big difference there. Right. The second thing is, is in parallel with that is saying, look, we're going to be sheltering in place. You're not going to be earning money. We're going to do things that are going to make life a little bit easier for you. And whether that's things around paying rent or mortgage, whether it's around paying your taxes, whether it's around providing people with money, whether it's opening up SNAP at a population level. Mm -hmm. Those are the sorts of things that need to be driven by the federal government. And when you do them, it makes it easier to stay home theoretically without doing it. Again, people are going to really chafe. And so when I see frustration around it, I 
totally understand. I just want people to under, to, to know where that the frustration c- can be directed and what the tools would be to make it better. Right. Lastly, I would say just to kind of get to the crux of your question is what do we do? We know the stuff that is going to keep people safe from COVID-19 right now. It is still social distancing. It is still wearing masks. It is still washing your hands. It is still isolating. If you test positive, have a sick contact or get sick yourself. Overlaying that with opening up society again is extraordinarily difficult. And mm-hmm. we have to lean on the, the prevailing wind of hopefully some, some common sense as opposed to emotionality and frustration. Right. Um, The Bay Area has taken very little steps this week. You can play golf again. (laughs) You can get your car washed. Um, You can go to a flea market, which I thought was kind of strange. So (laughs) little things we can do. But when do you think we'll start to see some bigger changes where more people can go back to work, kids can start thinking about school, you know, we can see friends and family? Um, How far away are we from those kinds of things, which would make us feel a bit more normal? literally millions and billions of dollars ride upon and emotional well-being and physical well-being ride upon. It comes when we can test properly Mm -hmm. and the time at which that's going to happen. I don't know the answer to that. And in my practice as a physician, I don't guess it's not fair. Um, I know that as a physician, I am looked at as someone and physicians in general, part of the responsibility of this job is understanding that your word carries significant weight and knowing that certain things that you say, like numbers and durations, that's what people are going to hear. So you have to be very careful when you use those tools. I don't know the answer. Mm -hmm. Um, I would like to see it continuing in a rational fashion. We know that, you know, Bolinas was able to test the entire population a few weeks ago. When we start doing that at scale, then we can do it. And if people want that to happen, that's when you got to really sound the horn for fed, for officials at the federal level, the state level, and the local level to ensure that we can test people properly. It would be, I wouldn't feel comfortable saying, I think it's going to be X period of time because that's a guess. And yeah. it sets a false expectation that can then just breed more frustration if we don't meet that expectation. And why are we not able to test so much more? It seemed like we were buying these six or seven weeks to you really ramp up the ability to test among other issues like getting hospitals more prepared. But um, why hasn't the testing, you know, happened? To do anything at a population level, you need infrastructure and a process at the federal level. That is the way we all grew up. That's how we saw things done. I was a history major in college. That is the way nations respond to crises. The Mm -hmm. central government in whatever form it takes runs the show. It doesn't always do it well, we, but we've seen them take ownership of that problem. Truman had the, the sign on his desk that said, the buck stops here. <laughs> President George W. Bush said, I'm the decider. We see leaders take that level of ownership and then drive the work to the best of their ability, acknowledging it's extraordinarily complicated and some will do a better job than others. Mm-hmm. We're not seeing that right now. And that's a right. problem. Right. So we know that um, the current president does not believe that he holds any responsibility. The buck does not stop with him. He has said that a number of times. Is the federal government where we really need to be getting these testing uh, materials and that's where this ability needs to come from? So, so what's happening, right, is as you get out of process, you start to do things in a heterogeneous fashion. And so we are seeing leaders at all different levels 
cobble together a heterogeneous response. So they're using different materials, different equipment, different labs, tests come back in different durations, you know, different, different uh, periods of time. It's better than nothing, but it's, it's heterogeneity in something like this breeds risk of misunderstanding, added expense, mm-hmm. harm, error, all of those sorts of things. And we're not all doing it the same. So mm-hmm. it's hard to have, it's hard to have the level, it's hard to have the level of clarity that you would like to see. That being said, it's better than nothing. And seeing mm-hmm. that sense of urgency from governors and mayors and local leaders and county health departments all across the country, that is invigorating. That is inspiring. There are people who want to take this on. They don't have the the weight that they can pull. They don't have the levers that move the needle as much as higher institutions. It's better than nothing. We're also seeing a big difference in the way um, different cities and states are responding to reopening because in some parts of the country, you can pretty much do anything. You can go, you know, get your hair cut, get your nails done, go out to eat, go to the beach um, and big droves. Is that a risk? Because obviously we don't have borders that cannot be crossed. And so if, you know, hot spots happen around the country, will that be worse for us here? We have freedom of movement in the United States. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, absolutely. When we think about things that are worrisome, hot spots don't stay isolated because people can move. And so when they're moving out of a hotspot, they may be an asymptomatic spreader. They may be infected and not know it. They may never manifest symptoms, but be contagious. And we have learned this about COVID-19 over the last several months. It behaves in very malicious and very insidious ways. Mm-hmm. And human behaviors need to adapt to the pathogen. The pathogen is not going to adapt to human behavior. And acknowledging that states and regions are opening up, again, in a very heterogeneous fashion, it's going to put everybody at risk because the pathogen is going to say, I am now exposed to more people. I have mm-hmm. new hosts. I'm going to go on to those hosts. And that's just what a virus does. Our job is to try to arrest that process. And if we don't, it's going to spread. And then when you overlay human behavior, such as freedom of movement, we absolutely run the risk of people coming to different regions and, and spreading the disease. I'll be right back with Dr. Mark Shapiro. I'm Heather Knight, and I'm back with Dr. Mark Shapiro. So how do you think that Governor Newsom and the local leaders of the Bay Area, including Mayor Breed, have done in their response so far? I have been very appreciative of their, the way I think of it is of their availability. They've been very forward-facing Um, They communicate frequently. They communicate across multiple channels. I feel like they communicate in ways that are designed for a general population to understand. And that is critically important because this is so complicated. Mm -hmm. I don't say that to sound condescending. This is really complex. I am learning as fast as I can and I struggle too. And I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm trained as a scientist. This is really complex. And sometimes when things are complex, that natural response is to just try to avoid it. Yeah. We have to step into that tension. And I feel like they are setting up information exchange in a really productive way. We don't have a playbook for how to manage this. And I use that word intentionally mm-hmm. um, because we are figuring this out on the fly. None of us were alive during the influenza pandemic in the early 20th century. So we are trying to maneuver the best that we can using basic scientific principles and good common sense. And I think that they are leveraging those things well. I do think that when they say they are committed to looking at data, that they are doing that. And I think that they're making mistakes 
And that is mm-hmm. going to be part of the process. This is going to be imperfect. And that's why we, again, have to lean on common sense and things that we know work, social distancing, hand washing, wearing masks, and avoiding and staying away if you're sick. What are the mistakes you think they're making? Of course, I want to hear about that. <laughs> you know, managing vulnerable populations is really hard. Mm-hmm. Managing people who are incarcerated, managing people in nursing homes, managing people with unstable housing or who are homeless. Those are the populations that are the most at risk and not having a comprehensive plan to allow them to stay separated, to be tested, to get treatment if they need it, to remove those sorts of problems uh, the best that we can, I think is a huge barrier. And I think we're struggling with that all across the country. Social Mm -hmm. determinants of health are a huge driver of this. And I think, again, unlocking what they can to support people who are sheltering in place, making sure people have access to food, uh, that, that needs to be baked in, right? People have access to water, making sure people's power stays on, making sure that anyone who needs access to the internet doesn't lose their access to the internet. I think that laying in those things, again, that just builds public confidence. It's difficult, but I would like them to take more ownership of that. Acknowledging they have limited bandwidth too, but I'm looking to them to do it because right now nobody else is. Right. Um, The homeless issue is obviously huge in San Francisco. The city was just sued over its response in the Tenderloin. Uh, What do you think is the right um, way forward for San Francisco's huge homeless population when it comes to protecting them from COVID-19? They have to be housed. Mm -hmm. And it's, I say that, I don't say that in a cavalier fashion. I don't say that to sound confrontational. We know as a social determinant of health that people with homelessness that is chronic live a significantly less number of years than people with housing. That was before COVID-19. We have a responsibility to try to make that better. It's extraordinarily expensive and challenging and frustrating and all of Mm -hmm. those things. And that's okay. It doesn't mean the problem shouldn't be solved. And now we have rocket fuel to make this way worse if we aren't very, very careful and we need to intervene. And so it's how do we create safe housing with the basics that you need, power and water and roof and heating and all of those sorts of things, transportation to get there and all of those myriad things that would make it a safer environment. You have to have an office that can execute on that. It's it's so difficult to do that. And it's easy for me to armchair quarterback it, but that's the challenge. And if we are able to move into that aggressively, at least that's a step in the right direction that, right, the, 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 that moment of inertia is huge, but we have to fight against it and try to get that moving forward. And on the economy, uh, it's estimated that one in six San Franciscans will be unemployed, um, if not now, then soon. And people are very desperate to get back to their small businesses, which are floundering, and get back to work. What do you say to people who who really want to do that and point to the numbers and say, "We did it. We flattened the curve." Um, you know, how do you kind of shake them and say, "We can't do that just yet"? I start by saying, "I'm sorry." I'm sorry that we're in this place. I start by just trying to acknowledge this is so hard and so sad and so disruptive and try to have some space. So when I'm in the hospital and I'm hearing stories like that from people who I'm taking care of in the hospital, it's just an opportunity to just let me hear what's going on for you. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really sad. It's extraordinarily sad. It's extraordinary. Everyone's different. And in our region, I mean, we're pretty battle hardened after going through, you know, two wildfires in Sonoma County in three years. And so we share our stories with each other and they're mm-hmm. rough and they're made worse one after the other. Giving some space to just hear that and say, I'm so sorry this is happening. And then think about what are the 
pieces of understanding that people have around staying safe, right? What are the goals here? We want to preserve human life. We want to minimize damage to people's long-term health. We want to preserve the economy. And when we say the economy, for me, I'm talking about individuals. I'm not talking about a massive corporation. I want people to have money in their pocket and have the ability to pay rent and feed themselves and feed their children and create the life that they aspire to. Giving them some space to first have that conversation before we get into the nitty gritty, I find to be very, very helpful because we're all humans and we're trying to make this right. Mm -hmm. And then from there, it's where do we agree and where do we maybe have some friction and try to resolve the friction based on what are we trying to get to? What is important to you? And when we do that work and that approach, I find helpful in numerous different types of conflict, but now it's really in specific relief with COVID-19, I find that actually to be quite effective. And even if we don't agree, at least we've looked in each other's eyes and said, I hear you. This is so hard. I'm so sorry you're going through this. You tell a lot of those kinds of stories on your podcast, Explore the Space, which is um, kind of a bridge between doctors and patients and for us to get to know people on the other side and to get to know doctors as real people. Um, What are you hearing from doctors and nurses right now in terms of how they're feeling about the pandemic? I know they must be exhausted, but are they sharing any optimism with you or what is kind of the vibe you're hearing from your colleagues and guests on your show? I really appreciate you asking that. You know, these are professionals. And what I have been struck by in terms of performance has been consummate professionalism at every level. It's just answering the call day after day under extraordinarily stressful circumstances. What I hear and feel from my teammates at Santa Rosa Memorial Hospital and what I hear and feel from my friends all around the country and people who I've gotten to know over the years and have gotten to know through social media, there's a real sense of anxiety right now. We have Mm -hmm. been through a real crucible the last few months, but it has only affected certain parts of the United States. And I think that everybody feels that sense of there's a big, big wave heading right at us. Mm. And we we all see the same graphs. We all see the same data. We all see the same case report numbers. And we all see what decisions are being made around the country. I think that there is a sense of foreboding. um, Mm. And there's that sense of alarm of, We are all going to be called to do this. Regions that haven't flattened the curve, it's going to be their turn. And our metal is really going to be tested. I I think that there's that sense of of foreboding around that. I think there's some anxiety and fear there too. It's okay to call that out. But Mm -hmm. I also think that sense of consummate professionalism is, is going to lead and we will, everyone will respond to the best of their ability and acknowledge that it's going to take a real toll. You also promote doctors sharing their true feelings and opinions on social media as another way for the public to get to know them as real people. Um, and you have been doing that by sharing some nightly artwork from your three-year-old son. <laughs> um, so he puts paint on, um, on paper and then folds it. You call it smash art, I think. Um, and you ask people what they see in this picture, like a war shark test. Um, why, are you, <laughs> why are you doing that? And why do you think it's gotten so much attention? I'm absolutely beaming right now that you brought this up. <laughs> so I do them at the end of the day that I've been in the hospital. Um, I love these pieces. And so I asked my wife about it because we try to be very deliberate about what kind of exposure our son gets to any sort of social media. We don't use his name. We don't show any pictures of him. Um, But we agreed, like, these are really cool. They're gorgeous. They're fun. I'll just put one up and let's see what happens. So I put hashtag smash art. What do you see? And people just love it. And they're seeing the most wonderful things. And what I am finding is people are saying, Mark, this is the best part of the day. Where's my smash (laughs) art? It's, there's a couple things in it, right? I think there's, there's that it's fun. 
it's creative. It's a little levity. People are funny and creative and they share goofy things, but they also share sad things. And then they reflect on why. And it just sort of opens up that we're that feeling of sharing an experience, even though we're socially distant, we're looking at the same thing in real time. We're responding together in real time. As soon as they go up, there's a wave of responses. So people really jump into it and it's all of the right things. It's colors and it's movement and it's exciting and it's new and it's unique. I think it just, it just pulls a lever that people haven't had pulled on for a little while. And in that way, it's fun and, and, and enlivening. I love it. It makes me feel better at the end of a hard day in the hospital for sure. And so yeah. I'm grateful that you called it out. <laughs> What's the weirdest thing someone has seen in your son's smash art? The weirdest thing someone has seen, I think the other day it was um, a bear wearing boxing gloves that were dolphins. Oh, that is weird. <laughs> When you look at it and someone says something, when I say that in a vacuum, you say, Mark, you need to get more sleep. But when you see the image, you can't see anything else after you hear that. And that's what's so much fun about it is you just, it, it's not just chance to look at things a little bit differently for just a couple of minutes and have some fun. Cool. Well, that's a good segue into our famous lightning round. Um, I know you're not in the city all the time. You, you're up in the North Bay, so you can answer these questions Bay Area wide if that would be your preference. Um, <laughs> where's your favorite place in the Bay Area to get a burrito? My favorite place in the Bay Area to get a burrito. I wish I remembered the name of it. There's the Taqueria right near the corner of 16th and Guerrero in the Mission. My sister used to live there. And when I would come into the city for the weekend, that was my first stop. If you're, if you're on Guerrero and you hit 16th, you would turn left and it would be on your left-hand side like two windows down. That's okay. my place. Okay, that's very specific. Uh, what is your favorite movie filmed in the Bay Area? My favorite movie filmed in the Bay Area? So I Married an Axe Murderer, done and done. <laughs> and I lament that I missed your live showing of it last year. I wanted to be there so badly. And oh, So I Married an Axe Murderer. Call it good. Peter Hartlab and I are determined to show that again when the Balboa is reopened and we can all get together. So I will keep I was you posted. Actually ask, like when you reopen, can we just do a redux of So I Married an Axe <laughs> Yes, Murderer? we will. Uh, where is your favorite place in the Bay Area to get a stiff drink back when we could do such things? The Tadich Grill. Yeah, that's a good one. What was what was your first concert? My first concert? Um, I think it was it was the Fine Young Cannibals at the uh, at the Cow Palace. Oh, cool. Uh, what was the last book you read? The last book I read was. <laughs> I can't remember the name. <laughs> I just finished it too. It's going to come to me. Let's go to the next one. Okay. What is your favorite depiction of a doctor in the movies or on TV? That's a, it's such a fun question. It comes up a lot. I really enjoyed Scrubs. It mm -hmm. was so whimsical. It, there was so much pathos. It showed doctors as human beings. It showed them as imperfect, but it also showed them as aspiring to do something really special. Um, it's not an accurate depiction in all respects, for sure. It is brilliant satire, which I also really like. And we're a profession that needs to have some fun poked at it from time to time. Um, it also captures the diversity of the things that we see and do every day. And also, hopefully, the continually growing diversity of our field in general with mm -hmm. respect to women and other you know, historically underrepresented minorities. All of those sorts of things, I felt like Scrubs did a really nice job. 
What is the one thing you're most looking forward to when our shelter in place rules are over? I think a day at the beach has got to be way up there. I think a day at the tennis court has got to be way up there. And I think a barbecue at Spring Lake, I think a barbecue at Spring Lake has got to be way up there. I th- so things outside with people is the connected <laughs> tissue there for sure. Yeah. Lastly, what is something you always make sure to squeeze into your busy day? Coffee in the morning, lock it in. Done. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that, I, that's like saying I'm, I'm going to breathe some air. <laughs> no, so I'm going to have my coffee in the morning. Um, when I'm working, I really do try to do the smash art because I know people are going to really enjoy it. And then it's having the debrief session with my son and my wife while he's eating his dinner. We're, we're dialed in on that. And that has become fabric in the day. And we make of it what we want. But it's our time to, as a three- as a, as a group of three to really look at each other and assess how we're doing and what can we do differently? What can we do better? And also have a laugh and have some fun and, and goof around. Great. Well, it was really fun to talk to you. Thanks for joining me. <clears throat> it was an absolute pleasure, Heather. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you to Dr. Mark Shapiro for joining me today, to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and to you for listening. Fifth Emission is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. If you like this podcast, please consider becoming a financial supporter of the largest newsroom in Northern California. You can sign up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod.